0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Nourish and
1: Flourish, a handcrafted, independent publication taking readers on a journey from the soil to the stars. Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site.
2: This week on Meet and 3, we're ringing in the start of our fifth season with dispatches from Portland, Oregon's biggest food festival, Feast Portland. We're bringing you words of wisdom on launching a food business from food blogs.
0: Most acquaintances from high school have now tried to start a food or fashion blog in some sense and quit very quickly afterwards. To ice cream shops. Every city you go to, the Salt and Straw is completely different than any other city.
2: We'll bring you insights and anecdotes about the business of the business. We
0: were like, cool, we're going to do this. We're going to try to raise $75,000 and we'll see what happens. And it was like the most gut-wrenching,
2: miserable month. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And, you know, unraveling the cuisine of the South has occupied volumes of books and studies, which continue to document the many traditions and ingredients of the cuisine built largely by enslaved Africans and their descendants. But it goes further than that. It continues, and it has continued to evolve. And there's no genre of American cuisine as storied as Southern, according to Rob Newton, Southern-born chef, restaurateur, and now cookbook author, and my guest today. In his book, Seeking the South, Finding Inspired Regional Cuisines, Rob describes how the clash of cultures and the ever-shifting mix of people who have moved through Southern regions have influenced the cuisine, making it culturally rich, yet with distinct regional differences. Rob was raised in Arkansas and went to culinary school in Vermont and cooked in several of the top restaurants in New York and ultimately opened his own place in Brooklyn. But the siren of the South lured him back, and he now resides in Nashville, where he's the executive chef at Gray and Dudley. Welcome, Rob.
2: Hey, thank you for having me.
3: Uh, you know, and I, as I say, that... that uh, Unraveling the cuisine of the South has, has just been, I mean, it has occupied us for good reason. For so long, no one can quite put their finger on like, what is Southern cuisine? What sure. is the South cuisine of the South? And that's kind of akin to asking, what's American cuisine? It's really, you know, it's a, it's a tough question because it is um, something that is imbued with uh, uh, a lot, of, a lot of feelings and a lot of different peoples and uh, kind of a melding of cultures. When you, I mean, you wrote that um, you believe the Southern cuisine to be the most important subset of American cuisine. What, how, what, how do you fit that into, and can you describe what you mean by that? <clears throat>
2: Well, I mean, it seems obvious to me, but I've been delving in this world for, I mean, my, my whole life on some level, but creatively and as a career for 20 years, um, I i think when you take a look across America and you take a look at these regions like Southwest or California or uh-huh. Pacific Northwest, they have their own thing going on, but nothing can compare to the, to the, the breadth of what happens in Southern cuisine in the South Southeast United States, you know, as another way to put it. Um, so I feel pretty confident about that. I think it's not dismissing, you know, the foods of Boston or Maine. It's just, this is a larger geographically, a larger, uh, area and a history that is considerably, uh, deep and certainly troubled, um, but the food history there um, can't really be uh, compared to anything else. That yeah. nothing really touches it, in my opinion.
3: No, I mean I think when people think about that, they think of American cuisine all over the United States, and then there's the South.
2: You know, it's, yeah. it's like there are yeah.
3: two cuisines: American cuisine and Southern cuisine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yet, Southern cuisine somehow has found its way mm-hmm. into all of American cuisine, which is, is really also quite interesting.
2: That could also be one of the things that how a cuisine gets defined, which is kind of what I wanted to help be part of a narrative about. I'm certainly not inventing Southern cuisine. I'm not saying that at all. But just promoting this dialogue and dividing the South into five subregions was, was one of the, the initial ideas that I had. And it's what how the book is broken down. And it's also how I approached menu writing at Searsucker, you know, like almost a decade ago. Um, I think these things are how cuisine those those, be being, those being
3: your two restaurants in Brooklyn when you were cooking in, in Brooklyn
2: uh, yes you're second yeah. nine yeah
3: yeah uh, in, well in fact let's let, tell me a little bit about yourself and your background me that I know about it let's tell our listeners sure um, you were born in well in south or near south Yeah, I was actually born in
2: Missouri but um, my family's which is just the next state over from Arkansas um, but my family's been in northern Arkansas and southern Missouri for that matter. Uh, generally known as the Ozarks since at least the 1870s, 1860s. Wow. Yeah.
3: And you, uh, but then you left. Did you you find that you had to leave the South to really appreciate it and come back to it?
2: Oh, yes. Oh, yes, for sure, for sure. I mean, it was a long ride. I I joined the Army a week after high school, so I I did that. I did that for three years, and then I came back to Arkansas um, went to college for a few years and decided to drop out of that, which my parents were super excited about and then went to culinary school.
3: <laughs> that's in how Vermont, I wound up in Vermont. And you went to culinary school in Vermont. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not just Vermont, northern Vermont. Yeah, yeah, right.
2: which is that's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful state. For anybody that's listening in Vermont, I
3: Absolutely I,
2: I think you're a wonderful state and I've met a lot of great people there.
3: And the culinary institute there is
2: It is, was great. I don't you know what you what's went to the one outside of
3: Burlington, right? The, uh, yeah, it's called
2: New England Culinary. Right. I don't know if it's still there. I think the one in Montpelier is still there, but I'm not Sure. Yeah. I believe the school still exists, though, yes.
3: So then you came back and you cooked in New York, and then you took some time off to travel, too.
2: Yeah, I mean, the trajectory is uh, coming to New York. My first job was at Le Cirque. Um, I just, you know, it was before the Internet, so I I mailed my sad little resume to Sotakun, who was the new chef at Le Cirque when they were reopening, and I was just, you know... I guess it's foreshadowing to where I wound up taking travels to Southeast Asia. I was very curious about what his Cambodian heritage would bring to French cuisine after working all those years in Paris. And I think I speak about that in the book, but like none of that really surfaced at Le Cirque, which is okay. Um, but that, that was my first job. And that was really overwhelming because I, I didn't really know anything. I went to culinary school and I mean, I knew basics, but yeah, right, I was but. cooking with people on a whole other level. And just it was a struggle. It was a struggle.
3: So you then you took a trip so you so you did you traveled to Vietnam and, and
2: Yeah, Vietnam. many years later after after Searsucker had opened um I well, you know, having that having that time in the and working with other like-minded cooks, that's when I got turned on to Vietnamese food. And so that was in the 90s and um there was a little restaurant called Vietnam that I would go to frequently and I just through eating and through exploration I just discovered that Vietnamese food is the cuisine of Southeast Asia that for the most part, appeals to me the most is because it's a little bit more delicate, not as chili-driven. The um, French influence is kind of throughout. Uh, there's a lot of finesse and power there, which is a hard thing to combine into a cuisine uh. and do it elegantly. Um, and I think the Vietnamese do a really good job of that naturally. And having those experiences, traveling there many times, spending extended periods of times and so extended period of time, and having a couple opportunities to cook with. Uh, a couple of nice Vietnamese people. Um, it's really changed the way. I mean, it sounds pretentious, but it's changed my food and changed the way I no, approach I, food. I, I
3: understand and, that. Yeah, yeah totally. And I think that's. Yeah. I think many chefs are being influenced and affected by their travels and different cuisines that, that speak to them and, and alter the way they cook.
2: It, yeah, yeah, it really is. It is a reality. I'm. Um, you know, nine go nine. We did very. <laughs> very legit uh, Vietnamese food and the Southern things just creep into it and it just happens <laughs> organically. And, and I also get, in, one of the things that put me on this path was one of my first trips to Vietnam and seeing so much commonality from the American South and and Vietnamese food. And Once you get past like, you know, fish sauce and lemongrass, but I mean, it's there, and I saw it, and I experienced it, and, well, and it's fascinating and, to me.
3: And you've incorporated it into some of the recipes sure. in this book beautifully. We'll talk sure. about that um, sure. later on in the show. Uh, but but as far as Southern cuisine itself is concerned, you, you wrote that you're very excited, and you use the word excited, about the way Southern food is evolving today, and that you would like to encourage people to think beyond the stereotype of Southern food. So those are... Uh, two parts I want to talk about. How do you think, what, what, in what way do you see the Southern cuisine evolving or has evolved?
2: Um, well, there's a lot. I, if you get out and travel around the South like I do, um, I'm probably one of the biggest fans of road trips out there. <laughs> <laughs> I like to spend time on the road going out, going to markets, and when I cook in other places in the South, very often I have to, I have to find a market to get some Vietnamese or Chinese herb that I want or some spice mix or some noodle or something. And in any town of any size, I can always find an Asian market, like almost always. Hmm. I I feel pretty comfortable saying always based on the cities I've been to. Um,
3: So you're saying that, so it's evolved, the Southern food has evolved in the fact that they've there are it's a new population of immigrants. So yes, bringing absolutely. new ingredients absolutely. and new foods. And
2: I'm not saying that they're making, you know, shrimp and grits with like Chinese sausages, but close. Know, maybe somebody like close could. And why wouldn't they? Right, you know? <laughs> but these markets and chefs like me and others who go to these markets, organically over time it's gonna creep into their food like it is mine. But even on a bigger scale, you know, with the fall of Saigon in nineteen seventy five and so many Vietnamese, uh, refugees coming to the American South, and beyond. Um, Those populations are now getting to the second generation and they're opening restaurants. And they've had, you know, 40, 30, 40 years of, of introducing their cuisine to Americans. And I grew up sort of knowing what a taco was outside of Taco Bell. I certainly didn't know what a banh mi was, but I feel pretty confident now that the younger generation, if you're a teenager now... You have a pretty good grasp of what a banh mi probably is, right. and I think those are just little indicators of how how that cuisine in particular—that's one we're talking about now—is just going to find a foothold. And I'm not saying that they're all going to merge together and become this fusion, but there are people doing really interesting things with crawfish and lemongrass <laughs> in the Gulf, you know, and that's I, I really cool. That's
3: come on, yeah. you know, crab yeah. spicy crab is yeah. is yeah, that's that's a big thing. Um, Well, when you mentioned that you wanted people to think beyond the stereotype of Southern food, what do you feel the most commonly held stereotype of of Southern food is?
2: Well, I experienced it a lot at Searsucker, you know, um, and also in culinary school. Like I was, it was just assumed that I had the perfect recipe for fried chicken Mm. and maybe I do. I'll let people decide. Um, Or that. I had collard greens running through my veins, or... Uh, and I maybe just you do. Yeah, maybe <laughs> I do. I like greens an awful lot. If anybody knows me, they know that. Um, but I think what I mean, I, mean, I don't think, I, I know what I mean when I say that is the South is a whole lot more than shrimp and grits and biscuits and collard greens. And those are certainly iconic dishes of the American Absolutely. South and Southern cuisine, for sure. But one of the motivating factors to break the South down into these five subregions is to get people to think about it in a way that people in the 80s began to think about Italian cuisine because I would, I think I'm correct when I say that, for example, in maybe 1985 when people thought about Italian food, they probably didn't really think about the differentiation between Piedmonté and...
3: No, it was red sauce. ...Roman yeah. food,
2: you know, yeah. and... We now know that those are pretty different things, and not to mention Sicily or Puglia. I just wanted to insert into the conversation about southern food and southern cuisine that there are regional differences. And the foods that I grew up with in the Ozarks or foraging for with my family or canning in the summer in our garden had some pretty serious differentiations from a child who may have grown up in Charleston. You know, they're, they're geographically about as far apart as right. you can be, right. but they're also different. Like, I didn't grow up with shrimp and grits. I didn't even grow up with grits. I grew well, up with a chi- lot of cornmeal. Right. Um, we did wild greens like poke salad and uh, turnip greens a little bit, but collard greens weren't really part of like, our thing. Um, those are just a couple examples. The well, first mushroom you- I ever had in my whole life was a Morel that we picked out in the woods because the Ozarks has that. You know, we have wild onions that we don't call ramps, they're just like little wild onions. Um, so, th- those are just some. Re- take, for example, somebody who grew up in New Orleans. That's I mean, a whole other can of worms, That's right. a delicious can of worms, but yeah. very different. Yeah.
3: So. It's funny because I was asking my, uh, a, a friend of mine who grew up in um, Texas, I think, in northeastern North mm-hmm. Texas, yeah. um, knowing that I was going to uh, be talking to you. And I said, So, when you, and she's just been spending a lot of time visiting her parents down there. And I said, So, do you, are you noticing any? You know, like <clears throat> other influences in what used to be your classic foods, and the first thing she said was Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. She said, "Oh my God, we have the best Vietnamese restaurants mm-hmm. right outside my parents' city, you know yeah and uh and she said a lot of it is reminiscent to her of of Cajun food, a lot of the Cajuns, the sauces and and some of the flavors, uh, so yeah. When you say New Orleans, I think well. So New Orleans is embraced. They they have already been influenced, but so sure. so. was well, a fine line between a
2: bandeau bon and a po' boy, you know.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. The commonality there's even with the Cajun is is the French, you know. They both had their influence on those cuisines. That's right. Yeah, and it comes comes through.
3: Well, you touched on, and we haven't talked about um, the fact that in your book, you you write a lot about these the, you've, you have defined five specific regions in mm-hmm. the south and your book is actually divided into those five particular regions. Like you said, I, and I, I did relate a lot of that to, you know, like Italian regions as well. Sure. Um, but describe for us what those regions are and, and sort of what maybe would define that type of food.
2: Sure. The upper south is the first chapter cause that's where I'm from. Um, it basically cuts my home state right in half. Um, Northern Arkansas cuts across encompasses all of Kentucky and West Virginia and Tennessee, right up to the mountains. Um, and then the deep south uh, takes the lower part of Arkansas and the upper part of uh, Louisiana down to roughly I-10 or north of, north of New Orleans. Um, and then this cuts a swath directly west um, to Georgia, so Mississippi, Alabama. Um, then the Gulf Coast region is that lower part below I-10 goes the Gulf Coast all the way around through the Panhandle of Florida. I incorporate Upper Florida just because the, I think somebody needs to write a book about the rest of Florida and its cuisine because it's pretty diverse. <laughs> but I think most Southerners would agree that, you know, that part of Florida is not really the south. But there's an argument to be made for the Panhandle <coughs> and Jacksonville and whatnot. Um, then Low Country is, uh, you know, 70 or 80 miles inland. Uh, off the coast, including the coasts and the islands of, of South Carolina and uh, Savannah and Georgia, and then Piedmont uh, coastal plains, tidewater—that's most of Virginia and most of North Carolina, including the coast. Again, going right up to the mountains um, where the Upper South would come up to it on that mountain range right around Asheville. So it yeah. gets kind of gray in that huh. area, but those. That's kind of how I see it, and there are people listening right now that might have a different view, and that's okay. But you got to start somewhere, and it seems to make the most sense to me because Upper South is very mountainous. It has more seasons. It's cooler in the winter. Um, Deep South is more hot, um, a little bit more flat. The Gulf Coast is obviously influenced by the ocean, the ocean. tremendously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the low Country has so much history. Um, yeah, island cuisine, a little bit, you know, with the sea islands and the history with the Gullah. And the, I, th- I, and there. I, th- I
3: think that's what a lot of us identify because we know, you know, more has been written and, and researched about that area, and I sure. think sort of like where it all started, a kernel there that you know brought it together.
2: It can and has and been its own book for sure.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. Um, but then again, looking at these regions and the way you describe them is a real eye opener because you forget, one forgets, you know that. There are, there are these northern, you know, the northern coastal plain, not northern coastal. There's, it's here in the south, but if you're in the south, the yeah. coastal plains, which are, you know, are um, totally different than, you know, than traveling to, um, uh, you know, the deep south and, and the Gulf.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I didn't think anything really about crab growing up in the Ozarks. You know, yeah. this wasn't. And for somebody who lives on, you know, in the coast of North Carolina or more, probably more in particular, uh, crab is very big in Virginia. As most of your listeners will probably know, crab is a really big thing, and it's just part of their upbringing and part of their food heritage. And that's just one small, you know, one small example of the different, you know, how, how different things are.
3: Huh. Um, aside from uh, the, the Vietnamese uh, populations that, as you say, have been there for 40 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other large immigrant population that you have observed having some influence on the, on the foods?
2: I mean, I, I think certainly la- Latino in a, in a broader sense, mm-hmm. um, those populations are popping up and, ha- and have been popping up around the South for, for quite some time. I think again, any town of any size will probably have a little mercado of some type, maybe a taco truck or some type of little taco stand. Um, I certainly see that in Nashville and I've seen that in other cities across the South. It's quite common. Um, Birmingham comes to mind. They have an interesting little market there. Um, So that, that's something I'm seeing a lot of um, refugees from Burma or Myanmar uh, settling and becoming farmers in North Carolina. I think that's really interesting. Mm. Um, There's a, really interesting Lao community that I didn't have a tremendous amount of success <laughs> meeting with in western North Carolina, uh, but they're there and they, you know, they grow and trade their own sticky rice. And it's, I've never been to Lao, but I've been to northern Vietnam and it, it is quite mountainous and <clears throat> Lao even more so. And I, I think it kind of makes sense why they would settle in a place like that because it probably feels a little bit like home.
3: Uh, now I've heard a lot about the the farming influences, the you know the growing, mm-hmm. obviously growing their, you know, their own strains of vegetables and types of vegetables and things. Sure,
2: you want to feel like you're at home. I think recent immigrants did it when they came here,
3: right? You know? Exactly. Yeah. They brought root with them. I mean, yeah. you know, that yeah. was that was a no brainer for them to do that. Um, what what are some of the specific ingredients that are or ingredients that are specific to the different regions, let's say for instance, you know, like sorghum or black mm-hmm. walnuts. Or-
2: sure. Um, <clears throat> I, th- I think, I know that you can get, bla- I think black walnuts grow in the deep south. I'm pretty sure that that exists, but they're really a lot more common in the upper south. Um, my family had a long tradition as a, as a kid sitting on the porch, like cracking black walnuts. If you've ever done it, it's dirty business and mm-hmm. it's really hard. And they really don't want to come out of that shell So much so that you'll never see like a complete uh, nugget of a black walnut. They get destroyed coming out, um, and your hands turn black from all the ink on the outside. So that's a very common uh, Upper South ingredient. Um, I think we think about collards a lot. I think we think about watermelon a lot when we think about uh, the Deep South. I think, you know, I dare open the fried chicken window, but I think when you think about the deep South, I think you might think about fried chicken more there than you do other places. Um, I think you certainly think about seafood when you think about tidewater, coastal plains and low country, it's sort of like the Gulf, you know, it's that, that's what's near and that's what you eat and that's what yeah. gets incorporated into right. your diet. I
3: mean, geography determines what we, you know, so much yeah. about what we eat.
2: And I think sorghum plays a part in the, in the upper South. You see it, you know, right, right in Tennessee where I am as well. Um, and then as it gets hotter, um, you see sugarcane and cane syrup uh, show up in the Gulf Coast and deeper in the south. Um, so those are some pretty common traditions. Rice uh, is obviously really big in the little country. That's had a resurgence in the last decade or more. Um, Especially, But some- Arkansas is one of the largest rice-producing states, if not the largest rice-producing state in the nation. Huh. Um, but it's more commodity rice. It's not yeah. some of the sexier heirloom stuff.
3: Yeah. Oh yeah, now I mean they've got people working on you know researching the original strains and sure, finding yeah. some of the you know the grain the seeds. Anson Mills has done a lot of work yeah. in that regard. And All right, it's, it's yeah. good work. Yeah, um, we're going to take a short break, um, but when we come back, I want to talk about some of these terrific recipes you have, both classic and those incorporating some of the influences of recent time. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Nourish & Flourish, a handcrafted, independent publication taking readers on a journey from the soil to the stars. Nourish & Flourish showcases thought-provoking stories from around the world and stunning photography. Each issue explores emerging trends in food, nutrition, recipes, soil health, technology, regenerative agriculture, travel, and more. Volume 1 of Nourish and Flourish includes features on the Svalbard Global Seed Bank, the International Symposium on Bread, and ancient Hawaiian aquaculture. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from and living a more connected life? Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site. For $29.99, you'll receive three issues. That's 38% off the retail price. Nourish and Flourish. Connecting readers with the people and stories that make a difference in living a more balanced, healthier life. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at nourishandflourish.site.
3: Okay, we are back and I'm speaking with Rob Newton and he has a new book out with uh, Jamie Feldmar and it is called seeking the south finding inspired regional cuisines and those regional cuisines all located right there in the south <laughs> well, that's a <laughs> the huge way I see it. <laughs> that's a huge swath of america you're talking about sure. you know, it's all, it's a large area we were talking during the break about um the differences you know say so here here is you know a stereotype oh well you're cooking in the south it's southern food but now you're cooking you know here you are from you were just describing Arkansas and cracking the black walnuts now here you are in a restaurant cooking in Nashville Mm -hmm. what are you seeing what's in in your um views and in your experience and in your background what's different about Nashville as opposed to some of the other areas that you're with the food you're cooking
2: well I think from the traditional side there's there's still plenty of meat and threes um there's certainly really good barbecue to be had there. <clears throat> but, you know, it probably goes without saying that the thing that interests me most um, are the immigration patterns that are showing up there, people who are um, maybe second generation who are, you know, trying to have their own version of the American dream. They're living there, and um, a couple of populations that come to mind, there's a pretty decent amount of Vietnamese there, but I don't want to beat that drum too much. Um, one of the more interesting populations um, are the Kurds, who huh. are from northern Iraq. They don't really have a country at, at the present moment. I think they would very much like to have. Um, the largest Kurdish population in America is in Nashville. Some, I, don't, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think in our research we came across around 15,000, which is pretty interesting. That's, pretty, that's interesting. And they have interesting markets. Um, most of them always have uh, like a bakery in the back. And I don't know if this is a traditional in their country or not, but the bakeries that I see, they have both a deck oven and a tandoor, which is really interesting. Oh, interesting. And they make a bread that in the tandoor that looks a lot like the bread that they make in Georgia, which I think is called kachapuri. Mm-hmm. And, but they don't put anything inside of it. It's just this flattened football-shaped looking thing that they put in the tandoor. And then in the deck oven, they, um, they do long, flat breads that kind of look like focaccia. And then they coat it with sesame seeds or something very similar to Um, Mm za'atar. And then they just dump them out the window and you just get a paper bag and they have a little pizza cutter and you cut it however you want. You put it in your bag and you go pay. And um, there's usually uh, some Kurdish families or workers working in the back and um, they're fascinating people. When you make eye contact with them, you're you're struck by their blue eyes. It's really, really, uh, really
3: fascinating, Mm. really cool. Well, what type of food are you cooking at the at the restaurant you're at?
2: Um, I'm doing stuff from the book. Um, I'm doing uh, the trout dish from the Upper South, um, which is, to to my mind, uh, well, it's an interpretation of what is to my mind one of Vietnam's great dishes called chaka from Hanoi. Ah, yes, that yeah, was a lot nice of dill recipe. and peanuts, and yeah, I really love that dish. Um, Peanut,
3: we and we talked, we, uh, you and I talked about that, but we didn't talk about it on the air. Um, About ingredients that uh, Americans may think are, you know, authentically American, uh, American, like peanuts, but in fact, you know, Southeast Asia has a lot of peanuts growing. Absolutely. Use them, and use them in a lot of the recipes, right?
2: Or, you know, Georgia is very often associated with the peanut, but some of my favorites come from North Carolina and Virginia. Um, And honestly, one of the experiences in Vietnam, and I talk about in the book, but it was really shifting to me to, they have these things in Hanoi in particular called bia and they're very low alcohol beers. They're usually made like the day before. They're they're lighter than even a lager. Um, They don't even put them in kegs. They put them in these plastic vats, and they just live in the back, and you get two at a time because they're in tiny little cups, not unlike what we're drinking out of right now. Um, And as a snack to get you to buy more food, the very first thing that sat down in front of me was uh, warm boiled peanuts. And I just had to sit back in my chair and, and just kind of meditate on that for a minute. Whoa, because where am I? <laughs> yeah. And then I, and that was really like an eye opener for me. And I just started, you know, then I, then I see quail and then I see, I go up into the highlands and venison is fed to me. Uh, it's just, which is, you know, people hunt for deer all over the South. And that's, it's really fascinating. And there are like lots of little stories like that happened to me that just made me kind of think that we're really not that different and we use so many of the same ingredients just with a little bit of different approach and I think there's room for us to merge and that's kind of what I've been obsessed with for the last I would say 7 or 8 years.
3: Yeah. Well, it certainly shows up in the book. I mean, as I say you there are the recipes are all beautiful and beautifully photographed, too.
2: Thank you.
3: Um they Shout out
2: to Emily in Nashville.
3: Okay, Emily <laughs> in Nashville. Nice photographs. <laughs> um, you incorporate a lot of the classics and of course I was happy to see that as a classic you did have not one but two recipes for cornbread you had a modern version (laughs) sort of an Italian cornbread version and then you had the classic version but wait And then the question, I looked immediately and read it carefully, sugar or no sugar? Oh, my sugar? God. You know the answer to that. Of course. Please, no sugar. No sugar. Yeah, right. No way. Okay. Those of you out there who think cornbread is a snack, dessert snack food, well, if you want, but there's sorry, no sugar. You're just wrong if <laughs> right. you put
2: sugar in your cornbread.
3: Right. And But the other one is quite interesting, too, with made with ricotta and get a little, you know. It's really fun and delicious and simple and just...
2: <laughs> Why not mix it up a little bit? You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's fun.
3: Something that surprised me um, showed my limited knowledge of of a lot of the southern uh, foods, and that's Kentucky us uh, in the regional specialties, smoked mutton. Yeah. Wow, that that's a thing that got me by around surprise around Paducah,
2: Western Kentucky. Yeah.
3: Huh.
2: Owensboro, I believe, is another center for that. I don't delve into barbecue, and a lot of people probably raise an eyebrow about that, but.
3: That's a whole other book. It's in a itself, whole other book, yeah, yeah, right. and it's yeah. just a
2: whole other thing. And I have so much respect for that. I, I see it kind of like sushi or something. It needs to have its own book and have its own thing. And you have oh, to yeah. train in how to smoke these meats. It's like I've trained as a chef to do all these things that I've done, and that's why I've written this book. But barbecue has not really been one of them. And I, I think it's, it's its whole own genre yeah you know well, it there, has its own regional specificity exactly
3: as well. and there are i mean there are many books <clears> devoted <throat> i'm looking on a bookshelf here in the studio and i see at least two of them right there yeah, yeah there are yeah. books that devote totally. themselves to that and yes that is a whole cult it's a culture yeah. it's a whole it's yes it's another cuisine barbecue, but
2: when we, but we were thinking about the upper south and we were thinking about uh kentucky because that's obviously in the upper south it, i just found that there could be room there to play with that dish um and it's it's an interesting phenomenon that smoked mutton is is one of their calling cards there. It's, I, it's pretty wild. I
3: just I, that's something I was totally unaware of. Uh-huh. And um, I'm another thing that they trying do to there, wrap my head around it. It's too, really but. interesting. I've been there
2: recently a couple times. They serve. Uh, I don't really enjoy smoked mutton. I'll sorry Kentucky. I just don't really enjoy it that much. But one interesting thing that they do, and, and I, I get it whenever I'm driving through there, is they serve. Um, pulled pork or i think they call it chopped pork there on little square pieces of like toasted texas toast kind of oh, situation tex- yeah, 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 yeah which is they don't, they don't call it texas toast but it's it's not on a bun it's not on a seeded anything it's on this little square piece of toast which is pretty unique and huh. it's toasted too which is also a lot of places in the south there's this white bread that's really yeah, soft so it's mushy and you can yeah sort of I thought that was pretty interesting
3: yeah Huh, interesting and then of course you fried cash you know, fried catfish dish in there well, of course totally. you got to have that yeah. right and yeah. um at pork ox and hominy and you know i shared my story with my shout mother out to pozole well and <laughs> and i i shared the story with my mother being polish and one of her only one of the only few dishes she knew how to make from her mother and then married my you know southern father it was pork ox and sauerkraut well it made him happy. Oh <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot of people happy. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that. Was, so there, and there they were on two, you know, two different mm-hmm. areas of the world, and and they, you know, came together. Uh, with one I think dish. when you
2: talk about um, you brought up the catfish dish, which is kind of near and dear to my heart because mm. I grew up fishing for catfish and um, having them stab me in the hand as they do when you're young and you don't know what the hell you're doing, um, and eating them obviously. But my experiences and my travels and my interest and in the way my palate has evolved sort of brought me to that dish because when down south, you know, very at least in Arkansas where I'm from, when you go to a fish house, it's french fries, maybe some green tomato chutney, certainly a big old hunk of white onion, some hush puppies, and then the catfish. And that's fine and awesome, but I like a little more nuance, I like vegetables a lot, <laughs> I like. Uh, textural contrast, Uh, I like a little bit of heat in pretty much everything, but nothing too hot, as I mentioned earlier. And I think that catfish dish in the book really sort of sums that up, because it's a spicy mayonnaise, and then it's uh, crispy catfish, and then it's shredded iceberg uh, that's cold and bracing and has a little bit of celery seed in there for like a funky textural, uh, not so much textural, but just a little pop of unexpected flavor. And that just really Kind of sums up how I like to eat. And yeah. It's a pretty good example. Yeah, of It is. Water it's menzo.
3: nice, nice contrast. Yeah, yeah. It does kind of refreshes your palate, and you keep yeah. eating more. <laughs> you
2: don't feel. Yeah, you don't feel super heavy. Exactly.
3: Right, right. Um, I'm picking out a few here, and and then we get to the whole topic. Um, and this is in well, you've you've mixed a couple of regions here with the the Brunswick stew, the uh, the Brunswick style braised rabbit, saying well, kind of borrowing from the Brunswick region. Um,
2: What's well, a controversial?
3: Yeah, so the Brunswick region is what is that? That's in well,
2: there's Brunswick stew in, in uh, Georgia and Virginia, and they uh, both debate over who invented it. Okay, yeah, so there's one
3: county that's named Brunswick, isn't it, or a, a, a region?
2: Uh, yeah, I believe there's a Brunswick. Town in Georgia,
3: uh, Brunswick, Georgia, um, okay. I believe. Georgia shows up everywhere. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, especially in the food and fish muddle. Uh-huh. Well, that what does describe fish muddle to me? Well,
2: if you can imagine North Carolina coastal <clears throat> chiapino, just ah. without fennel. Um, it's in broad sweeping strokes. That's probably how you could think of it. The interesting thing about muddle is uh, it can sometimes have like an egg in it. It tomato brothy situation um and then pieces of fish obviously um usually some type of pork product floating around in there um and it's just a little seafood so stew, stew. S- so another stew. name for
3: stew yep. yeah, okay and exactly w- well the same as with uh burgoo of course people if they don't know from burgoos you know mm-hmm. <laughs> but then you get close to barbecue because burgoo can sometimes almost be like a you know a bar- yeah it can have smoked meats floating in it barbecue. for sure yeah for sure yeah, yeah. um And there's a fine
2: line between Burgoo and Brunswick stew also, you know, that's a different show probably.
3: (laughs) Well, then you, if you did that show down South, then you would probably (laughs) get in fisticuffs with somebody. for sure, for sure. (laughs) Um, And then you have a lot of your adapted, as I call, you know, I didn't want to use, didn't want to overuse the word fusion and didn't, (laughs) we didn't want to talk talk about Southern fusion, but a lot of the adapted foods, uh, adapted meaning foods that show a lot of the influences of other cultures. And you mentioned quail earlier. You have a, a recipe in there with quail with chocolate gravy, chocolate sure. sauce, yeah. Sure. And that obviously has the Mexican, some Mexican, uh, or you know, southern region influence in there. Spanish, Spanish influence. Sure. I mean,
2: yeah. the uh, the origins of chocolate gravy in the Ozarks, I'm not entirely sure where it came from, but it's certainly a regional, uh, unique thing. And
3: and that's, a, that's in the that's in that region. The oh yeah the, yeah
2: yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I talk about...
3: The Upper South? Yeah, yeah. for
2: sure. Huh. Um, I I took a lot of inspiration from that unique little dish in in the Ozarks. I've seen it in Alabama, actually, but I believe it's it's from the Ozarks, um, which obviously could have come from many other places. Um, so I took that dish, and I didn't want to just do, like, chocolate gravy over biscuits or put it in the back. I wanted to build something around it. And it's a dish I served at, at Searsucker a long time ago, and... Um, I think I did this dish uh, in Garden and Gun as well a long time ago. Um, I took the inspiration of of a mole, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for mole, so I'm not saying that I made a mole because I'm smart enough to know that I didn't make a mole. <laughs> but I took some of those ingredients, some of those flavors, and incorporated it into this thing that I grew up with called chocolate gravy, um, and then just incorporated it uh, into a dish that has uh, something that we could go out and hunt for in the Ozarks and other parts of the South as well, which is quail. Um, and it's just a fun little simple dish, and I've I've I should be on the quail marketing board because I've tried to <laughs> sell qu- sell quail in every restaurant I think I've ever owned or worked <laughs> in, and people just don't really, for whatever reason, they just can't get excited about quail like me. And I would have been remiss if I didn't have some kind of quail recipe in this book. <laughs>
3: That's great. Well, one of my favorite, and I and I told you about this. Um, Just a very simple dish, but because I'm one of those few people in the north maybe who like the vegetable, and that's okra. And you Mm -hmm. have a charred okra Mm -hmm. um, dish in there, which shows, definitely shows your uh, Vietnamese or Chinese influences. Mm -hmm. And can you describe that one for us briefly?
2: Sure. Um, A couple things about that dish. I wanted to showcase okra in a way that didn't... uh, Hone in on its sliminess, which is what people so that's often. That's what turns everyone off. Yeah, right. and yeah. I also was committed not to do a fried okra dish because there's plenty of books out there with fried okra. Right. And if you get really good, small, fresh okra with, that's not overgrown and has a giant spine running through it, um, you could put it right in the pan with some bacon fat or o- olive oil if you don't or if you don't want to go down that route. I probably actually I would re- probably just use regular canola oil because it's pretty high smoke point and just give it a really really serious roast until it gets almost black on both sides and then it's done and then you take it out and season it with salt and szechuan peppercorns is the thing that we're, we're that leading it. up szechuan, to here right, yeah. right. It's such and my pepper. experience with szechuan peppercorn i never had it obviously growing up and um i think i have a pretty decent palate and pretty decent food memory and i was sitting in culinary school and we had this class that i don't recall what it's called i think it's like food theory or something like that. And we sit around and we eat herbs and we eat spices. And so many of these things in my young culinary brain were just foreign to me. And I remember so distinctly biting into a Szechuan peppercorn (laughs) and immediately thinking this must be the secret ingredient in Jimmy Dean's sausage because it's immediately what it took me to. And whether or not that's true, I have no idea, but I have always had an affinity for Szechuan peppercorn from that moment. And, um, Uh, Even so much so that I I, in the pork there's a pork belly dish in in the book where I incorporate a rub of sage and uh, um, uh, szechuan peppercorn and uh, chili flakes and a few other things to rub down on the belly because those ingredients play so well together and it's very reminiscent of traditional southern sausage mix which is sage and black pepper and chili flakes and then. Szechuan peppercorn incorporates so organically into that. I um, do
3: have that recipe marked in the book. That's a fun one. Yeah,
2: if you follow it and let it, take the time to let it air dry and poke all the holes, it's incredible. And huh. It it, does, it wouldn't even hurt it if you let it sit in your fridge for two days. The skin would get even crispier. All right. Yeah. all
3: right,
2: It's hard to sit there and look at it for two days, though.
3: Uh, and then one we were talking about, um, I, before the show, we were we were talking about... Chinese, uh, menu, are you loving you know Chinese food and? Oh sure and, uh, sure sure. sure. Um, but, Yunnan
2: province yeah.
3: Yeah, the Yunnan province, and do you have a recipe in there for uh, that somebody at a restaurant makes and you so you adapted a recipe the pot liquor uh, with uh, as a Chinese hot pot.
2: Yeah, I that just came out of my head. I don't think that I don't think we had that anywhere, um, but it just makes sense to me because we have this delicious thing called pot liquor that mostly from leftover greens, but it'll also be from leftover beans. And I just thought, what a delicious staple of American Southern food to um, take it a little bit further and kind of make it the focal point of something. So I make, like, a pot liquor from scratch and then put it... You have, you have to go get this cool pan that you can probably get on Amazon or uh, go to your, better yet, go to your local uh, Asian grocery store, and then they have things like this in there. It's a little pot that's divided in half, um, It's just fun. It's it's southern food is you know we're here talking about the you know a lot of things, but one of them is how Asian food and southern food are common, and one of those commonalities is uh, how much we both love eating and sitting around table and sharing. (laughs) And what a better way to do it than make pot liquor and have this uh, plethora of ingredients around that you just dip into this delicious broth. And I put little peanuts in the bottom. Um, that you just let them soak throughout and cook as the broth stays hot. And then once you get done with cooking all these meats, you can drink the broth and take your chopsticks or your fork and find those delicious, really cooked, boiled almost like peanuts. boiled peanuts, without <laughs> the shells at the bottom. Yeah, right, right.
3: For sure. it's very interesting. And, of course, what are you talking about as you're sitting around enjoying all this food? You're probably talking about your next meal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what That's how I grew like, up, right? for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then, and that yeah. is a very common Chinese uh, in families um, a woman who was on a previous show, she said, "That's that's how they would spend most of their family meal." Yeah. I was talking about the next meal. You know. Right. That's great. Good way to live. Well, it's it's a beautiful book, and it has <clears throat> wonderful recipes, and a lot of interesting history, and a lot of interesting cultural facts. And I and I think that I I second your excitement in how Southern cuisine has evolved, and and encourage people to you know to take a look at other than thinking about you know biscuits and gravy necessarily and think of some of the other things that are are really um it was an eye-opener to me the the way you have it split up into the regions and then identify it by the foods and the regionality of the foods that you know i I didn't really stop to think about i mean yeah (laughs) okay if i know that i'm going to low country and i'm going to have you know shrimp and grits and rice and sure. go to the Gulf Coast, you know, you know what how that's going to be determined. But these, you know, hey look, I discovered smoked mutton, you know. <laughs> yeah.
2: Or smoked mullet in the in the panhandle. <laughs> you you know, I just I I feel like I want to say that, you know, I have a deep, deep appreciation for the foods of where I'm from in the South in a macro sense and especially where I'm from in, in Arkansas. So I wanted to incorporate those into the book and show respect to them, but I also have probably, you know, for most of my life, been very forward-thinking and and love traveling. And I see the South changing, and I'm, you know, I'm not mad at field peas. I'm not mad at biscuits and gravy. I'm not mad at, (laughs) well, maybe I'm a little mad at fried chicken, but um, I'm not mad at any of it. I just wanted to hopefully be a part of the conversation of helping to further define the region where I'm from. And that's, that's really the goal, is just to broaden the conversation. That's really it.
3: Well, you've done a very nice job. And the book again is called Seeking the South Finding. Let me get back there so I don't (laughs) say it wrong. Okay, finding inspired regional cuisines. And thanks again, Rob, for taking time, Rob Newton. And the book is wonderful. And thank you for listening. This has been another Taste of the Past. Thank you.